Thank you, Pastor. And I invite you to turn with me in God's Word, or otherwise give your attention to it, as it is found in Luke chapter 10, where today we come to verses uh, 13 through 24. The Lord Jesus, of course, here is instructing his disciples. He's talking to them about their service to him. He's sending them out two by two. And uh, he's giving them information. He's giving them necessary information. Anytime you've had a job or undertaken a responsibility, somebody has probably instructed you in what to do, what to expect. And so Jesus does that here. And he strikes some themes that make us uncomfortable. At the end of our text last week, we finished up with verse 12 where he said, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. He's talking about those towns which reject them and the good news of the gospel. And he continues with that theme in verse 13, but then moves on to cause for rejoicing. So let's consider together this portion of God's word. Listen as I read Luke chapter 10, beginning with verse 13. Indeed, hear the word of God. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. We'll ask the Lord to bless this reading of his word and give him praise. Amen. It, of course, is essential in life to understand that any subject matter should rightly direct us toward God. Whether you're looking at the stars in the night sky or whether you're looking at the smallest of creatures or plants or flowers below, even the gorgeous arrangement here to my right. When we see the beauty of that, we see something of God in that. If we look at it, we think just in terms of biology. We think just in terms of cell structure, which are important things, without reflecting on what these things proclaim to us, we miss out. Have you ever missed out before? I've been uh, going down the road on occasion when uh, Kathy's been driving and engrossed in my cell phone and 
she would say something like, wow, did you see that? What? Maybe I'm the only one. But we've all been in those circumstances where we've missed out on something big because we were focusing on something very small. And we live in a world that's doing that to itself all the time. We are distracted by all sorts of things, looking at minutiae, allowing our imaginations to run wild rather than accepting the revealed truth of God and allowing subject matter to point us toward God. And so the Lord Jesus reminds us that there is a consequence for unbelief. And by the way, I want to say that I'm deeply indebted to the theologian of the 19th century, J.C. Ryle, for the input and the outline this morning. If you look at his outline and look at mine, you'll realize that I read him. He did not read mine. As we consider this matter together, the Lord Jesus says some very hard things. And note, of course, that we live in a culture that's entirely skeptical of statements like the ones that the Lord Jesus makes here. Now, we're all together willing to accept the good things that he says. And people will look at the things that they deem to be positive statements, positive thoughts, positive vibes. Things that he says about heaven but reject the things that are said about hell and about judgment. And yet, it all comes from the same source. And so, accepting what the Lord Jesus says, we realize that there is such a thing as woe. And he pronounces judgment by way of saying woe to these particular geographic locations. Commentators try to specify where all of these are. We certainly know where Tyre and Sidon are. There's a bill of discussion about Chorazin and Bethsaida and which ones they are. We don't really need to know that. What we need to understand is what's before us. That things had been revealed to these towns, that Jesus had been there and had performed miracles and they had had a chance to witness him and to see what he was doing and did not respond in the appropriate And so he speaks of two places that everyone would have said, oh, those are awful places. They're all about money and greed. And even when we read in the Old Testament, they were about enslaving people. In fact, they had enslaved Israelites or at least sold them into slavery in the Old Testament times. These were deemed to be wicked places. And so eyebrows would have been raised when he said that had the mighty deeds done in you and done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. They would have repented long ago? Yes, even in sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth, of course, very uncomfortable garment, not like putting on silk or cotton. A way of demonstrating outwardly grief, sorrow, profound remorse, That's how they would have responded had they seen what Chorazin and Bethsaida had seen. And what we begin to get a sense of here is that the sinfulness of those who reject Christ is very great. Now, I know, again, that that runs contrary to what is popular today. After all, we're all about everybody believing whatever they want to believe. And, of course, we very much believe in a free society. And I very much am in favor of a society where people can believe as they want to. Not to be coerced and forced. I'm not up here forcing anybody to believe anything. I'm simply standing and preaching what's in front of me. 
So I'm thankful for this free society. But what many have determined is it really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. But of course, you can be sincerely wrong. You can follow your GPS very faithfully. But if it's not been updated, you can find yourself in a mess, like a man recently who wound up in a lake because a bridge was out and his GPS didn't tell him that. He was very sincere in his driving. He expected there to be a bridge there. But all the faith in the world in that technology was of no avail when, in fact, the bridge was out and he was plunged beneath the water. Sincerity is not the mark of truth. The truthfulness of truth is the mark. And the Lord Jesus being our source, the one who reveals truth to us and the scriptures given to us by God, must be that direction that we follow. And understanding rejecting Christ brings severe consequences. Woe to you, Chorazin. That's an interesting word, isn't it? We can use that word woe in a lot of ways. I've been on a horse and I've said woe. I've looked at things that impressed me and I've said woe. But this is not the way the word is used. It is a word that describes severe judgment. You have no idea what's coming. There is an awfulness to it. It is an announcement of judgment. And so those are the consequences. He, of course, speaks of Capernaum also. Will you be exalted to heaven? Think of how we are in our human condition. How pleased we can be with ourselves. You know, I did all right. I remember one time speaking at washing dishes earlier. I'll just go ahead and throw that out. And I remember some years ago I had... Uh, washed some dishes and I thought I had done a very good job and my mother came along and she showed me where there were some things on there that hadn't been washed and I could have said well I got most of it <laughs> but we tend to pride ourselves by the way I was a child well, I want you to think that was that was my last visit home it was a long time ago we can pride ourselves and say, you know, I'm doing okay. Scratch ourselves on the back. But all the while, without repentance and faith, we're headed entirely in the wrong direction. And we can be in a position where we can think, I'm on my way. I'm going places. I have shared with you before how that in the last, well, two centuries ago, in the 1800s, president of a significant institution of higher learning was talking to a young man in his office, who was making very good grades, impressed all of his professors, was getting ready to graduate with the highest of honors, and the president of the college wanted to know what his plans were. And he said, well, I'm thinking I'll go on to law school, get a law degree. And he said, that's great. What then? He said, well, after that, he said, I'll, I'll practice, practice law for a while, and, but I'm really thinking, you know, maybe, maybe I might want to go into politics. I might... I want to go to Congress, even the Senate, maybe even the White House. The president said, that's wonderful. Then what? He said, well, I guess then after serving in office, maybe perhaps I'll have the opportunity to write a book and reflect on it in my memoirs. He said, that's great. What then? Well, I guess I'll just enjoy the fruits of retirement and, and 
Well, what then? Well, I don't guess there's much else to life. I, I guess after that I'll die. The president said, that's brilliant. What then? And the young man said, well, I don't guess I've given that much thought. And the president of that college said to this very brilliant young man, he said, young man, you're a fool. And you need to go home and think life through. Think of where you're headed and where you will be when you get there. There is a destination to life. And the Lord Jesus does not mince words. It is very clear that there is a judgment. And no one on the judgment day will be able to stand there and plead ignorance and somehow say, I didn't know. I didn't know there was going to be an accounting. I didn't know that things were going to be made right. I didn't know there would be consequences for rejecting what has been so clearly revealed when God himself has commanded This is my beloved son. Listen to him. The rejection of that truth carries with it the greatest and severest of consequences. These examples from history are there for a reason. Now, we've heard it said by many that those who fail to learn from history will be doomed to repeat it. And those of us who study history are forced to watch those people repeat it. And we're still learning, too. We know there are lessons to be learned. I had uh, relatives growing up. My, uh, I remember in a conversation one time at a family reunion, and they were talking about Pearl Harbor. I remember my older cousins were remembering exactly where they were when they got the news that, uh, that the base had been bombed there when World War II started. And I remember reading years later when a U-2 U-2 spy plane shot down over the Soviet Union, piloted by Francis Gary Powers, and all the consequences which came from that. And President Eisenhower, who was coming to the end of his two terms at that point, stood before the press, and he essentially said, nobody wants another Pearl Harbor. We were trying to find out what missiles the Soviets had in place and where they were so that we wouldn't be caught by surprise and off guard. That was one of the lessons that we tried to derive from that historic event. And we look at history that way, don't we? We try to derive whatever lessons we can from them. And yet God has given us all of these examples of the consequences of unbelief, whether it's Sodom and Gomorrah or all of the civilizations throughout the course of history who have operated contrary to the principles that God has revealed in His Word. It never ends well. And yet we somehow think that we make ourselves more secular and base things more on human reason and rationale than we can make a better world. We've been doing that for decades now. Isn't it amazing how that you turn on the news and you see what a better place the world is because we're inculcating principles. And I'm saying that very much facetiously. No, when we defy God and oppose Him, the consequences are not always immediate, but they are nevertheless real. Now, He sends out the 72. They go out with the message. They proclaim the kingdom of God. Miracles happen. We don't have those actual events recorded for us. In verse 17, they're coming back from having been sent out. And you're wondering, wait a minute, I want to read about all the stuff that happened. But we have here all that we need to know. And so they come back with their report. Lord, even the demons are subject to us. In your name, 
And he reported that he saw Satan himself fall like lightning from heaven. He said, you know, whatever you may have seen, I have seen the one who leads the whole band falling. And notice, he's the one who gave them authority. They might have been rejoicing over what they saw and what had been affected through them, but he said in no uncertain terms, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. Isn't that what you want to do when you got up this morning? Step on some snakes and scorpions? He's speaking figuratively, of course, as they oppose evil, giving them all the power over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall hurt you. Jesus sounds a note of humility here that is necessary. And it's good for us as believers that even in our times of rejoicing to remember that we are to be humble. There is nothing good happening in us apart from the grace of God. There isn't anything good that we've accomplished apart from what God is doing through us. I remember a preacher years ago when I was living in the Charlotte area. Every time he would get up to speak, in my experience, he would begin by saying something like, all glory to God. And I thought, you know, that's good. That could become perfunctory, couldn't it? We could just be saying it to be saying it, but in all of our interactions, when we see and experience blessings, when good things are taking place, it is important for us to give praise to whom it belongs. And that requires humility. That means acknowledging that somebody else has done it. Hard for us as humans. Runs contrary to our sin nature. Wow, look at what we've done. No, if it was good. Look at what God did through us. I remember years ago, I heard Tony Evans at an event and talking about Moses. And you know Moses. He came from an interesting background, didn't he? Raised as an Egyptian. And then he got a sense of his people's enslavement and he decided I'm going to fix this and apparently his plan hinged on the idea of killing the Egyptians one at a time so he managed to kill one and buried him in the sand and that came or brought the end to his plan and then he was 40 years in the wilderness in Midian herding goats Moses was quite the person but with that mighty staff as God's power worked through him, the Red Sea parted. Tony Evans said this, When it's God working, any old stick will do. Isn't that great? Why didn't I come up with that? And we need to see ourselves that way. God working in us and through us. Give Him praise and glory. That's why we thank Him before meals. We might be thinking, What did the Lord have to do with spaghetti? These noodles. Or this salad. Maybe we get that better. I mean, after all, that comes straight from something. It got presumably picked off of something and brought in. I see how that was grown. But we get thanks because good things come from God. And we want to give thanks to Him for those things. And the more mature that we are, the more thankful we become. Yesterday morning, I went outside, walked ginger. You know how humid it was yesterday morning? Our sliding glass doors were just all coated with moisture. And I went out there and I thought, I'm going to go back inside and I'm not coming out again. I'm getting the air conditioner. And I even texted about it. You know, here I was complaining, you know, and saying, it's so hot and humid down here. I'm, nobody's going to get me out of this house. I'm going to send Ginger out on her own. Yeah, right. 
And then I went back out about 10 or 11 o'clock, and suddenly the weather was beginning to change. The air was starting to dry out. And by yesterday evening, it was so pleasant out there, and I was convicted. There I was, grumbling and complaining about the weather, and suddenly we had that wonderful evening and that wonderful morning today, and there I was again having to say, Lord, forgive me. Thank you for providing for your grumbling, ungrateful servant. It felt like Jonah, you know, out there under that little plant, a worm chewing it in two, but that's just for bald-headed people to contemplate. Even so, we lack humility and When we are not walking humbly, we're not grateful. And there's a place for rejoicing, and we rightly ought to rejoice. But even then, we should do it humbly and recognizing that it is the Lord who is working, that it is God's power that is affecting transformation in lives. And even in this world where shooting has broken out in the Near East, and when we've seen this awful tragedy of evil once again rearing its ugly head, and we see a world that's falling apart, we know that God is at work in the world. He's continuing to save people. As I've said before, I watched once and saw an Israeli, a Palestinian, and an Arab sitting down at a table laughing together and making fun of each other and talking about how Jesus had changed their lives. And as they had come to the place where they were born again and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, here these, what should have been sworn enemies, were there talking to each other as brothers in the faith had been brought in and adopted into the family of God and with transformed hearts, they loved each other. What I'm telling you is this, that the gospel of God is the only power in the world that's capable of eradicating hate in the human heart. Now, we can modify our behavior. We can do things that would cause us to hate less or to act in better ways. There are all kinds of methods out there to accomplish that. But not all of the money available to the United Nations or to all the foreign policy bureaus in the various countries of the world pooled together can accomplish what I saw at that table on that day when people who had come to the Lord in repentance and faith transformed lives making fun of each other and laughing about it because they loved each other. No, human achievement cannot accomplish that. Only the power of God. And that's why we must be humble in looking to Him to do what we cannot do. As we move further, Jesus rejoices. But notice the way that He does. In that same hour, He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit had come upon Him visibly even at His baptism and And the Spirit working through the Lord Christ was the source of His power. And in that same Spirit, He rejoiced. What did He say in His rejoicing? I thank You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Now, if the Lord Jesus, who actually did live a perfect life, who lived sinlessly, acknowledged His Father in gratitude, then surely that's a pattern for us also. He thanked the Father. That's how He rejoiced. And that's how we should too. But notice what he thanked him for. Thank you that you've hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Now, if you needed a reason to be humble, he gives it to you right here. 
Have you come to the place where you've recognized Christ as the Son of God and you've yielded your life to Him and trusted in Him? Guess what? It wasn't because you were great in the world and God was so impressed with you, He said, I'll take that one. And I've said this numerous times. I'll say it again. If we're in His kingdom today, we can be assured it's because He counted us as little children. He's revealed these things to the most unlikely of His creatures. Why us? I don't have an answer for that. I think about that just every so often. Lord, why me? Why would you count me to be your child? I even, you know, struggle with preaching. I'm standing up here in front of you, as my grandmother used to say, and trying to make a talk. <laughs> when I'd be going somewhere to speak at a Bible school or something back when I was in college, and she'd say, you're going to go make a talk? And I'm thinking... I've heard people who are good at this. I've heard people who are very eloquent, people who can talk. You know, I was sitting beside Steve Brown one time at a supper at RTS in Charlotte, and he had that marvelously deep voice. And I said, wow, that's a great voice. How do you get that? He said, oh, by smoking two or three packs of cigarettes a day. (laughs) Wonderful man. I don't have that kind of thing. There are plenty of people who could do this better. And yet, here we are. And so we give thanks and praise to the Lord. I don't have to understand it. It's not my place to know what God's ultimate plan is. What I get to do is rejoice that I'm a part of it. Jesus said, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Notice that note of humility. He could have claimed them in his own right as the second person of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each of them are fully God, but yet the Lord Christ gives glory to His Father. I have received this by my Father, and so also must we acknowledge that which we have received from Him, which is everything. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son. These things have to be revealed to us. We can't ascertain them on our own, even though all of creation testifies. So, in His rejoicing in those verses 21 through 23. We have cause to rejoice because we know we get to be a part of this. He's included us. Not because he was impressed with us, because he counted us as little children. And so we've been revealed because the Son chose to reveal the Father. Amazingly. How humbling that is. And then he turns to his disciples after this prayer and saying to them, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Did you wake up this morning thanking the Lord that you've seen him? I know. Not the way the disciples were in that moment, but by faith. God having revealed him, having opened our eyes that we could see. Did you thank him? Are we grateful? knowing how blessed we are, how blessed they were in particular. Prophets who had come before them, they saw shadows. They knew something of the coming of the Lord Christ and they were able to prophesy amazing things. Yet they longed to see what the disciples were then looking at. Even kings, kings who were able to wield great power. Some of them built great wonders. 
architecturally, structurally accomplished great military feats, and yet they had they had not seen anything like what the disciples had seen. God become flesh right there in front of their eyes. We allow ourselves to be impressed with all the wrong things. You know, we we get caught up in the world and its ways. Whether it's a sports contest or whether it's a, a hobby, those things aren't wrong in and of themselves, but we can become so wrapped up in the here and now that we lose sight of what we really have in the Lord Jesus. We lose sight of this treasure that we have that is Him. And the humility that comes from knowing the Lord Christ is one that has manifested itself down through the long ages. I remember some years ago reading about Billy Graham and one of his trips to India. Mr. Graham recounted in his retelling of it about an evangelist he heard about everywhere he went. He said it didn't matter where he preached. People would say things like, oh, you should meet this dear brother. The crowds he draws are so much larger than this. And he has spoken to so many more people here than have turned out for your meetings. By the way, um, I think it was someone said um, in the early 2000s that the three greatest events of the 20th century were that the uh, Allied powers defeated the Axis powers in World War II, the fall of the Iron Curtain, and that Billy Graham stayed humble. Think about that. All that that man was able to do. He wasn't perfect. I don't mean that. But traveling in India, he kept hearing about this evangelist. and He was... um, in his place where he was going to stay and the roads were muddy all the places he'd walked his shoes had gotten filthy he kept noticing every morning when he got up somebody had cleaned his shoes and placed them back at the doorway and he said I want to meet that man and so he got to meet him and you already know what I'm going to say he was the evangelist the evangelist that he'd heard about that had spoken to hundreds and thousands of people everywhere he was He was well known, and yet in that moment he saw himself as a servant of the Lord who would scrape mud off the shoes of the visiting evangelist. How do we see ourselves before God? In humility we come to him and we pour out our hearts. And we recognize that he is the one we need. He has provided for us abundantly and graciously in the Lord Jesus And so that the living of our lives, as we live them out in humility, are lives that are lived out in gratitude. I mean, after all, what otherwise could be the motive for living a godly life? We're well-schooled in evangelical thought that comes from the Scriptures. We know we don't earn our way to heaven. We're not going to impress God by attempting to do good things. And so then why do we do it? Surely it's gratitude. Surely we're saying to the Lord, thank you for working in my life. Thank you for accomplishing what you are accomplishing in me, the most undeserving of all your creatures. Surely it must be gratitude. And indeed, I think Scripture bears that out. And thankfulness. Hmm. Last week, I had to talk to a cable guy on the telephone. Things weren't hooked up, working the way they were supposed to. You know how those conversations can go. They put you on hold forever and a day listening to music that I don't like. 
And then you get somebody on the phone, and here is supposed to be a state-of-the-art communications company, and you can barely hear them on the other end of the phone. And I said, Lord, I know you want me to be a witness. Please help me. And so through a frustrating conversation, I was as kind as I could be, and we finally got to a place where he said, okay, I see the problem, and here's what we need to do. And then, he said, by the way, where are you from? I noticed you have an 828 area code on your telephone number. And I said, yeah, I'm from western North Carolina. He said, well, I'm in North Carolina. He said, where'd you live? And I told him a couple of places I lived and come to find out, he knew a lot of people in one of the towns where I pastored. Reminding me what my mother said, that bad news can travel fast. <laughs> And suddenly I was grateful that I gritted my teeth and bit my tongue several times in the course of the conversation because somebody would have heard about it eventually. But you know, somebody knows all the time. I can't be what God wants me to be by my own strength. If there's anything good, if there's anything worth noting, it has to be because... He's working in me. And thanks and praise are due to Him. All glory, laud, and honor. And we have been blessed to see wondrous things. And Christians ought to be the most humble people on the face of the earth. Filled with joy and gratitude. But humble. Because it is not what we have done. It is what He has accomplished. close with this just because I think it's humorous. I have a hunting buddy who can't stand chicken the way that it's prepared in restaurants. He won't order it when he's out. He told me one time, he said, you know, I think one of the greatest evidences of the existence of God is Chick-fil-A. He said, there's no reason on this green earth that that restaurant should be the least bit successful. And by the way, I'm not trying to advertise for it just trying to make the point that he made. He said, that sandwich is the nearest next to nothing I've ever seen in my life. A nondescript piece of chicken placed between bread with a pickle on it. That's us. Now you may be wondering, where's the pickle? <laughs> But I'm telling you, you, being who you are in Christ, is evidence to the rest of the world that there's something to this. And we have the privilege and opportunity of living for Him. Why would we want to do anything else? All praise, honor, and glory be unto you, O Lord, now and always. And so, our Father, as we conclude this portion of this service, we ask you, please, to work in our hearts that all of life may be lived in worship and in adoration of you. Grant to us, Father, as we see, judgment is a reality, but so is rejoicing. That we may entrust ourselves to the one who is able to carry out your work to the last, 
But in the meantime, we get to bear witness to the world, telling them of Jesus and living life as those redeemed who could never earn your favor, but who have been granted for reasons that are far beyond our ability to understand. Here and now, and as you've said in your word, in the ages to come, we'll still be wondering at your kindness revealed to us in Christ Jesus. So bless us, Father, to be the people you want us to be increasingly. That all glory may forever be yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Be Thou My Vision is our hymn in closing. Let's sing the... uh, Oh, it's late. Let's just sing them all anyway. (laughs) Stand. Be Thou My Vision. May the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may the Lord lift up unto you his countenance and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. And everyone said together, Amen. Amen.